0: This Bible that we use, the King James Version, was originally translated into English uh, in 1611. And uh, so naturally, the the English they use there and the English we use today have sometimes a little different meaning, but it doesn't mean that the translation is wrong. And so we have to stay with the word. And one of the things that the later on, and let me just back up later on in the course of early church history, Uh, the organized Christian groups of people that had come to to accept the Trinity and they called it the Catholic Church because the word Catholic meant uh, universal. And so when they had all agreed and all come together at the Nicene Council, they started calling themselves the Catholic Church, which meant universal. Uh, After a few hundred years, they could not agree on some things and they split. You had uh, basically the Western part and you had the Eastern part. The Eastern part came to be known as the Orthodox, Orthodox. The Western became to known simply as the Catholic Church. Uh, we know them today as the Roman Catholic Church and the other is the Orthodox, which could be Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, uh, Serbian Orthodox, uh, what, in, in Macedonian Orthodox, whatever country you're in, it's their religion. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has one central figure called the Pope. The Eastern Orthodox has 12 men who that they believe are their, the fulfillment of the 12 apostles. And uh, I'm telling you all of that so because with the Greek or with the Eastern Orthodox Christianity, they take the position that the word of God is not infallible. Only in the ancient Greek language is it infallible. Therefore, it is with error. Therefore, if they change it or they do it differently, they have the authority to do that. Because what we have at our disposal, you can't really trust it. This is their saying. I, I know I've gotten literature on it. I've read, studied it. I know uh, extensively about that teaching. Now, in the western part of that division, and that was the old Roman Empire, uh, when it became uh, It became Christian and later divided in that in the western part of it, which was the Roman Catholic Church. Whenever they divided and and so forth and they became central, they said the word, the language was Latin. If it was written in Latin, then it was it was it was infallible. But anything else, it was not infallible. Therefore, they have a right to change it. Uh, They went so far as to say the Pope's word was infallible. That's one of the things they fell away from. And that's in our list here, the infallibility of the Pope, that if he proclaimed a doctrine or a new view of something, then his claim was infallible. It could not it could not be changed. It was not wrong. So the word that we have in our hands could be wrong, but his word could not be wrong. And so, therefore, they were able to change beliefs, and doctrines, and things as long as the people believed those things. And finally, when they said that only the ancient Latin is, uh, is what we follow, you cannot believe any translation, then it became important that everything be done in Latin. They, you know, They did mass in Latin. They did speeches in Latin. They talked. They did all kind of things in Latin. Uh, nobody exactly knew what it said, but they just said, okay, as long as they're, you know, doing it the right way, it's okay. We don't understand it. And there's no use reading the Bible because it's not infallible and it's not accurate and it's not truth. Uh, it's only, it's got to be in Latin. We don't know Latin. And so it becomes a forest. you understand what I'm saying here? Okay, you don't. <laughs> but nevertheless... <laughs> Nevertheless, this is what it began to evolve into and so forth. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the pouring and sprinkling part because originally baptism was always by immersion. I talked to you last week about the time I was in Rome in the catacombs and seeing the, uh, the, the guide saying the uh, inscription, the, the scratching on the wall, the stone wall of the fish. And you know about the fish that they... Uh, used back in those days to, uh, de- to state who they were. That I'm a Christian, you're a Christian because we believe in the fish. The fish was the symbol of being under, have gone under the water, that's what it represented. Uh, year for years I always thought it meant we are fishers of men, you know, the scripture for that, I always thought that. But this guide, who was himself a Roman Catholic, he says no, it did not mean that it meant that the people who were Christians had been put under the water was their baptism. And, of course, he was also aware and he knew and everything that that is not what they practice today. So I'm just telling you here. Let me give you some scripture here. I mentioned it last week to you. I want you to go with me to Mark chapter 1 and verse 9. I'm going to use some scripture here to show you here, first of all, that in the beginning, uh, baptism was not by pouring or sprinkling. Not by pouring or sprinkling. And uh, I'm reading here from Mark chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10. Uh, this is a dis- simple description here of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. Jesus' bab- baptism by John the Baptist. Jesus did not need to be baptized for the remission of sins. You well know that. He was without sin. And uh, the reason he was baptized was to fulfill all righteousness. John the Baptist said to him, I don't, I don't need to baptize you. Uh, You need to baptize me. And he said, no, but to fulfill all righteousness, let it be so. You baptize me. And so Jesus was doing that to fulfill the law so that he did not even break the law, even whenever he he was himself without sin. Look at verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway, this is the part I want to emphasize And straightway coming up out of the water. Notice that if you've got your Bibles with you, you've got a pen underlined that. Coming up out of the water. They were down in the water. And so he baptized them and coming up out of the water. uh, And it says he saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove uh, descending upon him. So uh, this is a scripture showing us that the baptism was down in the water. Another scripture that I want to read to you is found in the book of Acts. I referred to this one likewise at the end of our Bible study last week, but it is chapter 8 in the book of Acts and verse 35 starting to read here. This is when Philip, who had just gotten through baptizing the entire city of Samaria, and they had Peter and uh, John had come up and begin to pray and lay hands on the people and they begin to receive the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. And then in this, 30, then shortly after that, the Spirit took Philip and just transported him from one place way down into the southern part of Palestine. He was in the central part, It took him down in the southern part, where there was an Ethiopian eunuch who was driving a chariot. He had been in Jerusalem. He'd gone there, apparently, for religious purposes, trying to find God, trying to find spiritual direction, and he was on his way back to Ethiopia, going along that coast there of the Mediterranean Sea. And so as he was going so, he was reading, and the Bible says that he stopped for a moment and Philip all of a sudden appeared on the side of the road, and he said, you know, can I come up and talk to you? He saw he was reading in Isaiah and so forth and so he said how can I understand what I'm reading here if I don't understand this he said so verse 35 picks up from that and it says then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus in other words this is all about Jesus you're reading about and as they went on their way they came into a certain water now it the water would not be a, a, an important factor here if Philip had not been telling the Ethiopian eunuch, you've got to be baptized. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, the fact that they were riding along with water, it wouldn't be a factor except that Philip had said, you've got to be baptized in water. So they came to a certain water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And uh, verse 37, and Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, meaning he believed Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one who was to come. And and that would of course imply God manifested flesh. Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stand still and they both went down, they went down both, down both into the water. Notice that again, underline that into the water, both Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him and when they were come up out of the water the spirit of God of the Lord caught away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing praise God so what I'm simply pointing out to you here is that the language here in the scriptures let us know that their baptism was by immersion now the uh, the sprinkling and pouring thing came about when men begin to change that and say, well, what about the babies? What about the babies? What about the little children? Uh, they need to be baptized and you can't put them under the water. What about an infant? You know, you can't, be, you can't baptize them. Let me just say this. Babies don't need to be baptized. They are, they are not accountable for sins. The Bible teaches us that. The Bible says that the children are made holy. The, ba- the babies are made holy. It said when moms and dead, this is the 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And I don't want to get really in, involved in all of that, but it has to do with us living for God. If you live for God, your children are made holy and will go in the rapture with you. Praise the Lord. I'm talking about small children. I mean, when they get to be, you know, big enough, their feet are hanging out in the aisle, and it's time for them to, you know, make their decision to get right. That's why... You see these children; they they play in church and they grow up in church and they're babies and everything. And then all of a sudden, you see them getting under conviction, and they'll come down to the altar and they'll begin to cry and pray. And that's because the spirit of the Lord begins to deal with them. Now it's time for them to get right with God for themselves. Praise the Lord, and so forth and so. But before that, uh, they are not accountable for their sins, and therefore. They, if, they, if, if the rapture should take place, they would go with the parents in the rapture. Uh, I have a cousin who was born the same day I was, and uh, we grew, sort of grew up in the neighborhood. was—I I got scads of cousins, you wouldn't believe how many cousins I got, but he and I was born the same day. We were always very close growing up, and uh, our birthday is July the 13th, and uh, I never will forget one time that we were living in Miami, we knew where there was a watermelon patch. You know, and we, we weren't really mean about it, but once in a while on a hot July day or something like that, we'd go to that patch and find a watermelon, you know, and, and clip it and go someplace and, and, and open that watermelon and eat it. You know, we're stealing some farm. We'd never have seen the farm. We would even know where the farmer was. You know, we didn't know anything about it. We just doing kid stuff, you know, and I'll never will forget that uh, I went over to him and I said, hey, I said, Willard, let's go get a watermelon. He says, Nope. Just like that. I said, Why? He said, Do you know what today is? I said, Yeah, it's our birthday. He said, Today we are 12 years old. I said, So? He said, When you turn 12, we are accountable for our sins from that day on. I don't know where he had heard it, where he got it from. I think it's to do something with the Jewish recognition of that age or something. He said, When you're 12 years old, you're accountable. For your own sins. And if we go do that. We are sinning. And it's accountable to us. I said what about when you're 11? He said no. He said no no. That's accountable to your parents. If you sin it's charged to them. But when you turn to 12. It's charged to you. And I thought man. We're not going to eat watermelon today. He he is talking. He has really got an argument here. And finally I put one hand on my hip. And I looked at him. And I said you are a real rascal. I said, I cannot believe you're seeing what you're saying. He said, what do you mean? I said, all these years, you're willing to let our moms and dads be blamed and take all the rep for our sins, but now when it's time for us to stand up and be responsible for our sins, no, you don't want to sin no more. I said, what kind of guy are you? And he hung his head a little bit and kicked the dust around a little bit. All right, let's go get that watermelon. <laughs> I talked to men into going and sinning, amen, amen, yeah. And then we got shot at, and we decided not to do that anymore. <laughs> amen, God bless you. Well, but anyhow, the, the children do not need to be baptized. I'm talking about babies and infants and everything. But in those days, in order to tie families to the church, the quote, quote, church, they begin to use the pouring and the strength. First it was pouring, and then it became a sprinkling process. If it was good enough for babies, good enough for small children, then it was good enough for the adults. And so finally they said, why even baptize? Why immerse at all? We'll just sprinkle. At first it was pouring, then it became sprinkling. Uh, Even to this day there are some who feel like that the sprinkling is not quite enough, so we'll always do the pouring, whatever. But in the original baptism it was not the case. They went down into the water and they uh, they were baptized in that fashion. Now, let me move into the next one here. I want you to look at the. this next one here is called celibacy. Everybody see that? Celibacy means that the ministry is not to be married. It means you're not to be married. Celibacy means that they are to refrain from marriage, not to have a wife, and so forth. And so that was brought in as a presentation of We are so very holy that we don't even have married. We don't even live a married life and so forth. And so celibacy was brought in. Let me show you what the scripture says about it, because when it began to appear in the early church, and when I call early now, I'm talking about the later early church. When it began to appear in those circles, it had been around for a while already. It had been around for a while already. So I want you to look with me, if you would, in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And uh, this is, I'm going to read in the first verse. I'm going to read down the uh, verses 1 through 3. Look at this very closely here. This is 1 Timothy. This is Paul when he was still living. and He wrote to Timothy. Uh, which was uh, like a son to him, though he was not an actual son, but uh, he was the son of the gospel. He says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. This is not me saying this. This is Paul talking about it. Speaking lies, verse 2, Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Look at verse 3, forbidding to marry. If you've got your Bible, underline that, forbidding to marry. This would be one of those doctrines that will come along, he was telling them. They're going to say that you're not, you, cannot, you cannot marry. And then he goes on to say, and commanding to abstain from meats. That would be those that will come along and say, oh, you're not supposed to eat meat. Or certain types of meat, or whichever, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Now, I'm going to just read this for what it's worth. This is off the subject of the, of the celibate and the celibacy and the marriage factor. But look at verse 4. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. That's why when we, we eat, we pray. Not only to say, Lord, thank you for the food, but to also say, sanctify the food. Praise God. And it's sanctified by the word of God already and also by our prayers. Praise God. And so whatever it is, you know, I know in the in the Old Testament, pork was forbidden. You couldn't eat Shellfish. You couldn't eat oysters. You couldn't eat clams. You couldn't eat, uh, and the Jews still don't to this day. They don't. You couldn't eat lobster. You couldn't eat shrimp. You know, you didn't eat those things. But in the New Testament, that was that was allowed by the Lord. That's why the Lord let down that sheet to Peter and say, "Peter, slay and eat." And Peter said, "No, no. I've never eaten any of this. never before." From my, year. he said, "No, no. Everything I've made is holy and righteous." So whenever the Lord included Gentiles, he also included the foods they would be eating and their diet. You know why? Because you can't always keep the diet all over the world. People eat all kinds of things. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, was, I was in Japan not long ago, and somebody said to me on the plane just before we got there, they said, you're going to eat any of those uh, deep fried uh, scorpions? I said, What? Yeah, they got scorpions they sell. They sell them on the street. You Make sure you pluck the tail out if you eat one. I said, I'm not eating one. I, I, I promise you, I won't, you know. Well, I mean, you know, but there's no scripture against that. Praise the Lord. you understand what I'm saying? That the Lord here, praise the Lord, opened that, and so you, we can eat anything. Now, I'm getting off the meat thing. That's why some people say, oh, you can't eat this, you can't eat that. No, 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 just eat whatever you want to eat. Just oh, make sure you pray about it. I'm not a big pork eater. I'll be honest with you. I'm just not a big pork eater. I like ham once in a while, occasionally, and that's about it. But uh, I guess I worked in a, in a meat factory too long, a meat plant, you know. Worked in a meat packing house in Saint Paul many years ago, and so I don't eat. Uh, there's some things I just, you know, I don't eat I'm done pork. Here. But it's okay. Scripturally, it's all right. Praise God. Everybody say praise God. And so that's not the factor. Getting back to this third verse, though, forbidding to marry. And the Lord would said, you know, that we are not to uh, have laws that forbid people to marry if they want to get married. Now, I'm going to take you to another verse that is, uh, that is found over in, I want you to, 1 Corinthians 9. Go to 1 Corinthians 9 with us. Let me show you this one. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church, chapter 9, verse 5. Chapter 9, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians. Paul writing here, and he's trying to validate his right to be an apostle. Verse 1, I'm going to back it up to 1. He says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Or not ye my work in the Lord? And he was validating that he was an apostle. And verse 5 says, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife? In other words, if I was married and I had a wife, you know, I can have a wife as well as other apostles. Everybody see that? Underline that in your scriptures there because uh, celibacy is not, was not uh, in the original church. That men had to be without wives for them to be men of God, like the priesthood, and so forth. Uh, that is the priesthood of, the, uh, of, uh, of Catholicism. He says about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, which is James <clears throat> and Cephas. Cephas was Peter. That's the Greek name for Peter. And so Peter had a wife. We know that. And so it says here that, you know, James had a wife. They had a wife. Paul said, you know, I could have a wife as well. What I'm trying to say here is uh, they left that apostles doctrine then they went in and did their own thing and said, oh, now you can't have a wife. This is the teachings of celibacy here. Celibacy, which means you cannot be married. Uh, Look also in Mark. I'm giving you scripture because that's how we refute all this. Uh, This is Mark chapter one, verse twenty nine. Mark one twenty nine, and forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simeon and Andrew. Uh, Simeon is Peter. This is uh, Simon. I mean, not Simeon. Simon, Simon, and Andrew. Simon is Peter. Simon Peter, and with James and John. And verse three. But Simon's wife's mother was sick of a fever. So Simon had a wife. That is, Simon Peter had a wife. And a nun, they tell him of her. And then it went on to say in verse 31, and he, Jesus, came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Immediately the fever left her and she ministered unto them. She was healed immediately by the Lord. The point that I'm making simply is that Peter had a wife. There's a couple of places here. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Praise the Lord. So when somebody says, oh, well, we're not to, uh, we're not to have wives and we are to be, listen, folks, if you think this stuff was only back there in that early church, you're mistaken. I have lived long enough to have seen some of this stuff drifting around in Christianity when I was a young guy. There were people that were teaching when I, I remember as a young man, just when I was first saved, there were people that were teaching that if you were married, you had to leave your wife or your husband and live celibate. In other words, you couldn't be married anymore. And if you were, if you did live together, you couldn't be man and wife together. And, I mean, they had some weird things out there, you know. And I'm just saying, this stuff has been floating around, drifting around, and it's always somebody that comes up. And all this, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. That's never been part of the word of God. Praise the Lord. Never has been. Amen. The Bible teaches that every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband. Praise God. And that's it. And that's what God teaches, and that's the way we are to live, and so forth. So the celibacy stuff was not in that early church, I mean, was not in that original early church, and uh, and it was added onto it later. Let me move on here. I know my time is going moving on as well. I want to look at the the one transubstantiation, transubstantiation, and transubstantiation is this. I'll explain it to you. <clears throat> Transubstantiation is the belief that when people receive communion, and of course it's called Mass in the Catholic Church, when they receive communion, that the wine is literally, this is, this is true, it's literally changed to the blood of Jesus. And that the bread that they eat or the wafer they eat is literally changed to the body of Christ. Because Jesus said when he broke the bread and lifted over, he says, take this is my body that's broken for you. The wine he gave to them and said, this is my blood that's shed for you. Okay, it's symbolic. In other words, it represented his sacrificial life that was given for us. Praise the Lord. And that was what communion was all about. But they make it a thing where that this this transubstantiation is what has to happen for you to have Christ inside of you. You've got to have his blood and his flesh by taking communion. And it became a twist of things that people felt like I've got to go and have communion on a regular basis to keep Christ in me. Listen, the way we have Christ in us is by the receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That is Christ in us. The spirit of Christ is in us when we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's only one spirit, one body, one spirit by which we're all baptized into one body. And that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Ghost. That's Christ's spirit. If, if, if that spirit that was in Christ dwell in us, it shall quicken your mortal body at the, at the last day of the trumpet. You need it to go in the rapture. But that's how we have Christ in us. In Madrid, uh, Spain, there was a statue they had of Jesus Christ made of chalk. Uh, in in front of a church there and uh, the people this is uh, something I read in a missionary book but the people in that city would become so hungry for God and this is so sad to me when people are hungry and somebody is stopping the way standing in front of them that they can't get to Jesus because they teach them untruths, false doctrines give them false hope or they give them no hope, whatever it might be. Uh, and, and so this statue of Jesus was in front of this, st- and people would secretly go to that statue and look around and take a, pull a knife out of their pocket and scrape some of that chalk off in their hand and put it in something and take it and mix it with water and drink it in hopes to get Christ in them from that statue. This is true. And they had worked on that statue and worked on it until it had lost its form. It had one time been a statue of Christ. Now it was just a a chalk form, I mean, a chalk thing standing there that had been whittled on, scraped on over the years for so long. People wanting Christ inside of them. And let me just say this, this to us. Praise the Lord. When we come to church, let's praise and worship the Lord. Let's say, Jesus, thank you, Lord, for all of your goodness and your blessings to me, but also thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your wonderful uh, life that you have given us, but also your life in us. Praise God. And that's how we have Christ in us. Praise God. And so this thing of of transubstantiation was to give people sort of a hope that if they would always come to church, come to them, come to that uh, gathering, and uh, received communion; therefore, they were getting Christ inside of them. That was called trans. The uh, Catholic Church taught that it had to be by the priest. The priest was the one who changed it. He changed the water—not the water, but he changed the wine uh, to the blood of Christ. He changed the bread to the uh, to the body of Christ. Later on, they changed it to where only the priest gives the wafer only, he doesn't give the wine anymore. That was changed even later on. But that transubstantiation thing was done by the priests. When the Lutheran church broke away from Catholicism and the people says, what about the transubstantiation thing? Who's gonna change that? And Luther taught, okay, it's done by Christ. You still need transubstantiation. You still have to have the change. You still have to have Christ in you and so forth. But it will do. Whenever you receive communion, Jesus does it. He does, He changes it. There's no change at all. I want to give you a scripture. I want you to look with me in First Corinthians 11 for a moment here. Look at First Corinthians 11 with me for just a moment, and let me show you here what the Bible says about it. This is where Paul's talking about communion, and uh, I'm reading here in verse 23. This is 1123 of 1 Corinthians. Paul talking about communion. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. This is what communion is all about. It's to remember that the Lord died on Calvary and his body was broken and his blood was shed that we might be saved. Communion is for that reason and for that purpose that we remember the price that was paid that we might be saved, that we might respond by saying, thank you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We glorify your name. What a wonderful savior and what a wonderful friend you are to us and to worship him in that fashion. In the next verse, verse 25, After the same manner also he took the cup. This is Paul still speaking here. When he had supped saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it. Notice it doesn't say once a week. It doesn't say once a year. It doesn't say once a month. It doesn't say twice a year. It doesn't say anything at all. It doesn't say as oft as you do it. As many times as you do it. He simply says as oft as you do it. Uh, as, as often as you drink it and uh, let, me, let me back it up here this cup is Lord in my blood this you do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me the same thing about the bread as it also it was with the wine or the fruit of the vine as it's called and referred to it says in the remembrance so it is in remembrance of the Lord that's why we do it praise the Lord that we might remember the Lord and that we might know, praise God, that he's the one who has given us all things. Praise God. And uh, look at verse 26. This is the last verse in that group. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. So it is a witness, it is a testimony. It's not only it's a remembrance for us, but it's also a witness to the world. That you believe in Jesus Christ and you it has nothing to do with changing all of that into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that may sound weird to us, but literally that's what transposentiation means, is that it is changed and everything. And so I say here, this was an added thing that was added later, and it was not in the original. Let me talk to you about confession here. Everybody ready for this one? Confession. Everybody say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We're going down this list here. I want you to look at 1 John four fifteen. I want to talk to you about confession for a moment. And, and I'm going to maybe get into a little bit depth here with you. Look at 1 John. This is not St. John, but 1 John. This is the epistle of John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. <clears throat> Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. First of all, The word confess uh, comes from uh, the word acknowledge, means to acknowledge the Lord, acknowledge Him. Uh, It speaks about us acknowledging the Lord. It also speaks about us being a witness of the Lord. If you will confess the Lord Jesus Christ, if we believe in the Lord and confess the Lord Jesus Christ. To confess the Lord, let me start with that one, that's a simple one, but to confess the Lord is to simply state who he is. Let me just say this. If you want to confess the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, You confess the Lord. We confess the Lord by saying, Jesus, I worship you. I praise you. You're the God of heaven and earth. You made all things. All things are by your hand. Praise the Lord. You are our king. You are our savior. You're our friend. You're the one that will never leave us nor forsake. You are confessing the Lord when you do that. That's confessing the Lord. Praise the Lord. It has nothing to do with you know, little secret talks and so forth about all the things that I did this past week or last past month or whatever it is. But it is confessing the Lord in that fashion. But it does say that we're to confess our sins. Let me show you this in a moment. Uh, Let me show you here in chapter four, I'm still reading here in 1 John chapter 4, verse five. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the son of God. This is the part where we say Jesus is the Lord. And you get saved, and you pray for the Lord, and you say, Jesus is who he says he is. And the reason for that is because there is a lot of pressure on the church constantly to make Jesus no more than just a man. That's all he is. But Jesus was God Almighty, manifest in flesh, and he has borne witness to that himself by all the miracles that he has done and that he still does. Praise God. Now, look at verse, we're in chapter 4 there, First John, look at verse 2, just backing up to 2, we're in 16, we're back up to verse 2. It says, hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth, <coughs> excuse me, that confesseth that Jesus Christ is coming the flesh is of God. That means you declare Jesus Christ to be who he is, praise God, and you confess that. However, there is the confession of sin. Let me talk to you about this. I want you to go with me to, uh, I think it's the book of James. Go over to James for a moment. Uh, Let's see here. Just back it up to James. You're in John there. Uh, James is only a few pages back. Go to James chapter 5 and verse 16. Look at this one very closely. Everybody with me? If you haven't been, get with me now on this one. All right. This is James 5 and 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Notice that it says confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. Now let me say this and I've gone back and I've studied the Strong's concordance and all the Greek and the Hebrew and everything. This doesn't deal with Hebrew, it just deals with Greek. But in the word, in the meaning of the word confess, and there's two different meanings here in the word confess as it's used in the Bible. But in this case, it does not mean that you confess in detail. You just confess that I was a sinner. I was on the wrong road. I was living the wrong life. Confessing your faults is simply saying I was not living like I should have lived. I was, I was doing the wrong thing. I was headed the wrong way. It's not to say, well, I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that. And it's not going to somebody and loading them up with all of your filthiness. And I say that very respectfully for all of us before we ever came to the Lord. We don't load them up with all of our filthiness that we have done in order that we might come to the Lord. Confessing our faults is simply saying I was at fault. I was wrong. I did it wrong, and then you acknowledge Jesus Christ as being the right course. It's not a thing, and that's why it says, it says here, confess your faults one to another. And there was a reason for this to be done, the reason for this to be done. And pray one for another that ye may be healed, that healing might be a factor, praise God. And it's possible that a person was living a way that they should not be living, even after they're saved, and doing things they should not have been doing. And so when they come, when they say, you know what, I want to be healed of an affliction I've got and everything, and you decide to lay it down, and you want to lay that thing down, you just say, I've been doing wrong, I admit that I've been doing wrong, I want to do it right, and God is able to help us in all of those things, and he is able, praise the Lord, to touch our lives and touch our hearts. Confession is a great and wonderful thing, and it's a thing that we should be very, very grateful that we can do, but it's not... Whispering our every little detailed thing. In fact, the Bible says in one place to speak of the things that we have done before we were saved. It says it is even it's even abomination to God. We should not do that. You know, and so I'm just telling you here that it's not God's will that we up because by doing that, it makes you think that if I confess to him and then that priest or that man behind the curtain there then forgives me of my sins. He has no power to forgive. Only God can forgive sins. And therefore, any confession that we ever make should be unto the Lord. Praise God. And it should be to him only. Amen. So confession is the acknowledgement of sins. Yes, I've been doing wrong. And God is with me. And I'm going to walk with him. And I'm going to serve him. And God will heal me. And this has to do with healing right here. I never will forget. And I've mentioned this before. The woman I prayed for in a wheelchair one time. That. Uh, that was had a, had, was paralyzed on one side of her body. She'd gone to Gainesville Hospital and been in Gainesville Hospital and they were going to operate on her brain. And uh, they, they had to shave her hair and so forth. And she was sensitive about it. And she said, give me a little time. She came back home and uh, she was in a wheelchair and paralyzed. She called for me to come pray for her. And I went to pray for her. And I never forget that uh, I did pray for her. And when I got through, and I knew she was a backslider, and I said to her, I said, Will you serve God if God will heal you? If God heals you, will you serve the Lord? And she started praying and crying and saying, Lord, and she said, Brother Myers, I have done wrong. I have done so many wrong things. I've turned away from the Lord. And she began to confess not individual detailed faults. You understand what I'm saying? but just began to confess that she had done wrong in a lot of things. She just said, I've done a lot of things wrong. I have always done everything right. She said, I've, you know, I've been guilty of so many things. You know, do you, you think God is still merciful to me? God will. And she began to weep and cry and everything. I laid hands on that woman. Folks, laid hands on her head, and she came up out of that wheelchair and danced all over that living room place just like that. You talk, about, you talk about a miracle, an instant healing. I've seen God do it. You will never be able to change me. I prayed for, a, 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 I am a pastor, Brother Wright, up in, uh, in Crawford's Indiana. We prayed for a blind boy one time. And he was blind, 12 years old, totally blind. And his grandfather brought him church to be prayed for. We prayed for that boy. And his eyes was instantly open, And he could see just as good as you or I could. Just like that. I'm just telling you, God can do anything. I know that God can. I wish I could tell you exactly what each one of us need to do to have a healing. I don't know. God chooses sometimes not to heal, and I don't know why that. I don't have all the answers. I don't think nobody has all the answers. Uh, Some people act like they do have it, but I don't think nobody really has all the answers. But I do know God will do that, and I've seen him do it. And so this woman uh, came up by that wheelchair, God bless her, and she Cooked supper that night for her husband. I've told the story before. Drove to church that night. Came to church on a Wednesday. It was on a Wednesday and everything. Came to church that night. Turned her life around. But she didn't have to confess all of her bad faults to me in order to be healed. But she just simply said, I've been doing wrong. I've done the wrong thing. I know I have. And then she said, and she started repenting of everything in general. And God instantly healed that woman. I'm just telling you that God is able to do that. But sometimes it takes us admitting what we are doing that is wrong. Uh, some of you are aware. My time is gone. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're gonna, we're gonna go, I've got some good things to give you. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Amen. Let's stand together and lift our hands and worship God and thank him here this, this morning. God is so good. Aren't you glad you know the Lord? Aren't you glad God one day reached down and saved us? Amen. Let's worship him right now. Jesus we praise you, we worship you, we glorify you, we magnify your wonderful name. Thank you for this wonderful and lovely congregation here today. Touch our lives and hearts. We belong to you, Lord. We are your people Call your name. Bless the service today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Praise God.